Hey everyone, welcome to another podcast. I know it's been a while. I think the last one I published was in February and then before that was like December or something. The reason why is because I had a daughter in February and so all the spare time I have is towards taking care of my current clients and they actually have a private podcast feed now. So if I get a chance to record a podcast, it's usually going on the private client podcast feed. But anyway, I thought I'd throw out another podcast for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it's been a while since I've done one. And secondly, because you may have seen this, my main Instagram account was disabled. What happened was that my Facebook account was compromised and my Facebook account was linked to my Instagram account. And so I've been trying to resolve that to no avail. So I now have a new Instagram account in the meantime. It is Coach Luke Tullock. So if you haven't seen that yet, the old Instagram account is currently not available and you can see me posting content on my new one. So for this podcast, what I thought I would do is actually answer some of the questions that came up on my story Q&As today, which is... Thursday the 19th so I'll probably just be publishing this straight away after I record it um, I thought it might be nice because then I can give a little bit more in-depth answers on some of them that I don't get to do otherwise so let me jump into the first question are traps getting enough work even if they're not getting hit directly so I assume you mean upper traps here what people often don't realize is that the traps is actually quite a big group of muscles we have upper mid and lower traps and they all have a sort of slightly different function or line of pull, which means that different exercises are gonna be hitting different areas of the traps. Usually when people say traps, they mean the upper traps because they're the most visible. Um, your upper traps will get a little bit of stimulation from some rows and things like deadlifts and stuff potentially just from like holding a heavy weight. But if you really wanted them to grow a lot, I would be doing some other movements like let's say a shrug or a, you can actually do lateral raises that take the arm um, up to next to the ear and that will get your upper traps a little bit more. So I guess it kind of depends on whether you want to grow your upper traps much or not. I think it looks pretty badass. <laughs> so maybe doing some shrugs or some of those raises is a good idea for you if you feel like you need more mass there. Otherwise, you will get a little stimulation from things like rows, deadlifts, that sort of thing. The next question is, can you do an effective recomp if you've been weightlifting for more than three years? And the answer is yes. So I made a post about recomping, which is losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time. And I guess I'll just walk through it real quick now. So this is definitely possible. You can use the energy from the fat that you burn to fuel muscle growth for sure. It's much harder than just doing like a dedicated cutting or bulking phase. So I'm still mostly a fan of that sort of dedicated phases because it means you can kind of gear everything towards one main goal and fundamentally fat loss and muscle growth, the, the chemical processes that support each of those are, are kind of fundamentally different. So it's much easier to just kind of do a dedicated phase on each, but it is possible to recomp. It's easier to recomp under a few conditions. Number one, if you're overweight or obese, it's easier to lose body fat and to build lean muscle at the same time. So that's one situation. Another situation would be if you're a beginner. In fact, as a beginner, I actually don't recommend dedicated bulking or cutting phases at all. I just recommend getting into a good training habit, good nutrition and sleep habits, 
and you should experience both muscle gain and fat loss at the same time. Thirdly, if you're coming back from an injury layoff or something like that, it's obviously going to be easier to regain some of the muscle you lost just due to like muscle memory effects. So under those circumstances, it's relatively easy to recomp and it gets harder the more advanced you are. If you've been lifting for three years, I would say you're probably in intermediate range right now and it is harder to recomp, but still possible. To recomp, you kind of need to be a little more strict about some things in your training and your nutrition and your lifestyle. So I think it's more important to, to like make sure that you're training really hard in the gym. Um, you kind of want to have more, I suppose, good days in the gym than not. Whereas if you are in a dedicated bulking or cutting phase, you know, I don't think it matters quite as much. Like you're going to have some bad days and some good days and that's okay. I think you need to be more on top of your nutrition. So things like nutrient timing or the actual ratio of macronutrients that you're eating start to become much more important than if you were just say bulking. Uh, and that means that you might want to start optimizing, you know, how many carbs you're getting versus fats, timing enough carbohydrate around your workouts to, to really boost your workout. Uh, making sure that you're getting enough protein really consistently and splitting that up throughout the day, things like that. It's also going to be more important that you do things like manage stress and get to bed on time and get enough sleep, those sorts of things in terms of lifestyle. Now, that stuff is all fine, but it can be a little bit difficult to do that consistently for a long period of time. And it can be a bit harder to track your progress if you're trying to recomp. So, that's why I typically recommend people don't go for a recomp approach unless they're sort of willing to put up with some of that stuff. Hope that helps. So the next person asks how to improve pull-ups. The simple answer is to do more pull-ups. <laughs> so the principle of specificity really helps here. Um, if you want to get better at doing something, you've basically got to do stuff that is really similar to that. And that means that if you can't do a pull-up currently, what are you going to do? Well, we need to find some way of training that movement pattern and increasing your strength, uh, obviously, without doing a full pull-up. So we have a few options here. We can do things like lat pull-downs to use the same muscle groups and start to build your strength in a vertical pulling pattern. We can use assisted pull-up machines or bands to help you out with the movement. We can also use eccentrics, which is basically where you just jump up and lower yourself down. Those are all tactics you can use to start to increase your strength with a pull-up. And certainly doing that stuff for reasonably heavy weight and low reps is going to transfer a little bit better to getting your first pull-up or two. Now, technically, a pull-up is also a sort of palms facing away from you version of, of a chin-up and that is mechanically a little bit harder for most people to achieve. So what you might also do is want to build up a little bit of strength on like a neutral grip or a palms facing towards you chin up and then progress that into a pull up, which is the palms facing away from you. Hopefully that gives you some ideas. The next person asks, are there any benefits to essential amino acids or is it just a waste of money like BCAAs? So BCAAs are branch chain amino acids. It's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. So these are amino acids that are helpful in triggering the muscle protein synthetic response in your muscles. Once that response is triggered, you still need all of the other building blocks, all the other amino acids to actually build some muscle out of. So BCAAs for me are not that useful by themselves. You still should have enough protein in your diet 
that you're getting all of the other amino acids as well. And taking essential amino acids as a supplement is kind of a similar thing. It's like, why would we spend a lot of money on this essential amino acid supplement when we could simply use whole foods or even just a a regular protein shake that has tons of amino acids in it anyway? So for me, it's not really worth the investment. Some people like it because they like how it tastes or that it's easy to digest. And so it's nice to have during a workout, for example. But frankly... If you okay, if you got money to burn, go for it. But it's a pretty expensive supplement. And so I would rather just have like a whey protein shake or something. And then you're going to get all the amino acids you need anyway. So that's my opinion on it. I don't think they're wrong to take. I just don't think they're worth the return on the investment. Now, I've been getting a lot of questions about stuff like this. What are your thoughts on the fat burner OxyShred? I get a lot of DMs about fat burners, in particular things like carnitine. And the reality is there is no supplement out there that is an effective fat-burning supplement. In terms of actually getting leaner, there's not much that's going to do it in terms of a supplement. Now, technically, you might say, okay, well, you know, having a stimulant or something like that is going to burn more fat or whatever it is. We have to kind of separate fat oxidation from actual fat loss. At any point in time, your body is using various fuel substrates to keep itself alive to keep generating energy that might be glucose from carbohydrate it might be converting amino acids into glucose or uh, um, just burning the amino acids directly or it might be using fatty acids to generate more energy now what's actually happening there at any given point doesn't necessarily mean what's going to happen in terms of your body fat stores over time So for example, if you were to say, well, doing low intensity cardio burns more fat than high intensity cardio, that's technically true during that time. But over a 24 hour period or a 48 hour period, the difference doesn't really matter because what we really care about is the total amount of energy that's being used. During the actual activity or during the time you have like elevated fat burning, yes, okay, you might be burning or oxidizing more fatty acids, but that doesn't necessarily mean that over a 24-hour period, you're losing any more body fat. So any supplement that kind of claims to increase fat burning, that might technically be true, but that doesn't mean weight loss or fat loss on the scale, so to speak. There's no supplement out there that really helps with that. So I I would save your money, to be perfectly honest. Okay, um, just having a look at the next one here. How to deal with the loss of motivation to train? Really good question. Comes back to intrinsic values. I've spoken about this a lot. Um, Essentially, an intrinsic value is something that can change over time, but it's something that is sort of central to what you want to achieve in life or, or something about you. There are some charts out there where you can kind of look up example intrinsic values, but I'll give you some examples myself. So for me, something that's really important to me is to learn and grow as a person. That I would say that that is a very high um, value for me. It's always going to be kind of top three for me. You might feel like you have a lot of intrinsic values, but we really want to focus on kind of what's your sort of top three to five at the moment. And it can change. So don't get too stressed about this if you go through an exercise trying to figure it out and you're like, I don't know. I I think all of this stuff's cool. So for me, if I want to learn and grow as a person, 
then anything that I do in my life should somehow align with that value, right? And that might mean for my training that uh, challenging myself by trying to lift a bit heavier or trying a new style of training or coming up with an effective training plan or all ways in which I can kind of express that intrinsic value. Now, your intrinsic value might be a bit different, but I suspect that if you're bored with your training or you don't have the motivation to do it, then you don't see how it is connected to something that really matters to you. Uh, for some people, you know, you, you kind of might say, well, I want to look a certain way and that's fine, but I, I wouldn't call that a value, so to speak. If you look a little bit deeper than that, like I want a six pack, okay, well, why do you want the six pack? Perhaps it's because you enjoy feeling confident or you enjoy um, expressing what your body's capable of or something like that. And then the training and the having the six-pack is not necessarily the goal in and of itself. It's more that that activity actually aligns with a, a, a deeper value of yours that gives you some sort of satisfaction and this positive feeling. So with your training, I think you should maybe just step back and have a look at, is your training something that actually aligns with some sort of intrinsic value of yours? And if it doesn't, maybe you need to find a way of physically training or, or doing some kind of physical activity or a sport or something that does. And um, perhaps it's just a case of you haven't identified in what way it actually aligns with your intrinsic values. Um, going beyond that, I think sometimes just doing something that is fun at the same time can be really helpful. Like you don't necessarily need to go to the gym and lift weights like a bodybuilder to get the health benefits of lifting weights and that sort of thing, right? I, I really encourage people, for example, um, like I wanted to get fitter, like cardiovascularly fitter because I feel like it improves what I'm capable of doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but it's really kind of boring to just go into the gym and sit on a bike for like 30 minutes or 40 minutes at a time. So for me, I found something a bit funner to do, which is to play touch rugby. And so I joined a touch rugby team. It ticks a few other boxes for me. It's important for me to be social and to build my social relationships. I'm in a new city, so it allows me to uh, meet new people and that kind of thing. Plus, it allows me to work on my fitness while I'm actually having fun. It doesn't really feel so much like I'm just out there slogging it out on an on a exercise bike or a rower or something like that. So perhaps that's another approach you can take is to just find an activity that you think is fun that happens to also be physical as well and that can help you feel motivated. It definitely helps if you're doing it with other people. So if you can find some sort of activity, whether it's like hiking or rock climbing or surfing or something like that, I think that helps a fair bit. Okay, next question. How do people doing calisthenics always seem so jacked? Well, if you stick to the fundamental training principles, then there's no reason why doing calisthenics can't get you super jacked. Like ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to recruit muscle fibers and place mechanical tension on them. Your body doesn't really care if that mechanical tension comes from calisthenic exercises or lifting weights or using bands or anything else, right? The problem with calisthenics is that it is more difficult to sort of cover all of the exercises you need to do with adequate resistance to keep progressing and keep building muscle. So a classic example is the legs. It's pretty tough to find exercises that will challenge all of the muscles in your legs with adequate resistance that you can still progress over time. That's pretty hard to do. 
you can use things like pistol squats and sissy squats and this kind of stuff for sure, no problem. But again, it just gets a little bit tough. For some of the upper body exercises, I mean, something like a chin-up or a dip or push-ups can serve you pretty well and it can take you pretty far. But again, you start to run out of variety and a way of increasing the resistance. It's pretty common in calisthenics training that to increase the resistance or the difficulty of your training, you can't just put weight on in many cases. You kind of have to go to a new exercise variation that is biomechanically a bit more challenging. And so that can be a little bit hard as well. But that's the reason why people can get super jacked doing calisthenics because fundamentally, if you're doing something that is sort of tough enough, like you're reaching failure before you're able to hit about 30 reps, then you're doing a really effective style of training for building muscle. Um, So if you enjoy that, then by all means, go for it. Just be aware that if you have limited exercise variations, it is going to make it a bit harder to progress in the long term. Okay, I might do one or two more. What are the top glute exercises? Again, I get this one a lot. Uh, I think people overthink glute exercises a little bit. One of the issues I believe is that the sensation of an exercise does not necessarily tell you how effective it is. There are lots of exercises that train the glutes really well that we often feel a bit more in our quads. Things like squats or step-ups or leg presses or split squats are really, really good glute exercises, but we tend to feel them a little bit more in our quads, just like maybe the quads burn a little bit more or whatever. Anything that extends the hip is going to use the glutes to some extent. So a back squat, a leg press, a split squat, a lunge, all of those things are going to be really effective for glutes. There are obviously some other exercises that are pretty obviously more glute oriented, things that are just hip extension, like Romanian deadlifts or good mornings or hip thrusts. Those are all also very effective glute exercises. But a big mistake that I often see with people who come to me for coaching, for example, is that they're just trying to do too much at once and they kind of get a bit of fear of missing out. Like they might be missing out on some special glute exercise that they really like or feel is a particularly effective one. Um, I think if you have one or two main exercises that are a bit more sort of knee flexion squat pattern oriented, so like a squat or a leg press or a step up, and then you have some exercises that are like one or two exercises that are a little bit more hip extension oriented, so something like an RDL or a hip thrust, then that's plenty to get your glutes. That is absolutely plenty. So I guess I've just named all of the exercises that I think are the most effective. Things that I think are not very effective are things like crab walks, frog pumps, bodyweight hip thrusts, that kind of thing. Because yes, you get a lot of sensation in your glutes, but there's basically no resistance to those. And so you're not actually providing a muscle building stimulus to the glutes. You're just sort of feeling your glutes burn quite a lot. Uh, How would you deal with bloating after meals? The first thing I would look at is FODMAPs. So FODMAPs are fermentable carbohydrates that your gut bacteria can ferment and produce gas from. Now, everyone has a bit of a different response. So FODMAPs stands for fermentable oligosaccharides disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And certain foods are rich in the monosaccharides or the disaccharides or the polyols. And so you might be sensitive to a particular group of FODMAPs, or you might simply be 
having an overall intake of FODMAPs that is really high, and that means that you start getting some gas. So what I would do is look up FODMAPs, and there are plenty of guides out there that have potential replacements that you can have instead. So an example would, of foods that are pretty high in FODMAPs might be uh, onions or garlic. Sometimes wheat is as well. You might find lactose in dairy gives you problems. You might find artificial sweeteners in things like chewing gum or protein powders give you problems. As I say, it's going to be a bit individual. And just have a look if there's a particular meal that you tend to get bloated after. Is it rich in, in one or more of those FODMAPs? Uh, do you notice that you get more bloated on a day where you eat overall quite a lot of FODMAPs? Like for me, for example, I don't find I'm particularly sensitive to anyone in particular, but on some days where I might have a lot of artificial sweeteners on top of all the stuff I normally eat, then I tend to get a bit more gas. So I would just look at FODMAPs first and see if any of those sort of give you more bloating and uh, you can kind of go from there. All right, guys, I might cut it from there. Just a reminder, the new Instagram account is Coach Luke Tulloch. I'll leave a link down below. Thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you soon.